Welcome to New England Lacrosse Journal's Chasing the Gold podcast, your destination for all things lacrosse. I am your host, Kyle Devitt, and in studio is Mr. Jack Piatelli. Jack, how are we feeling today? I feel great. Unlike you, you've got some Unlike PT you. today, do you? I do. I do. Yeah. I gotta go get stim. Got to get a one of those weird liquid ice things and got to do some exercises that make me feel silly. So looking forward to that. Yeah, and then you, you're off the field for a year. I mean, I don't know what uh, your teammates are going to do. They're going to miss you out there. You're not going to have the uh, offensive production uh, without you on the field. Well, what, what's your shooting percentage? One out of 10? Right before I got hurt, I rung one off the pipe into the parking lot. So I feel pretty good about coming back. Shooters don't die. You it's know true. that, right? You, yeah, you can just stand The last thing you lose is your power. Yeah, right, exactly. Exactly. So we'll figure it out. But we should talk about our guest in studio, Shire native. Casey Broderson, also the assistant coach at Providence College. How's it going, man? It's going great. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Thanks for having me, Jack. And uh, looking forward to doing this today. Yeah, absolutely did not recognize you when I saw you this summer. I know you are sick of being roasted by this, but all of your pictures online are you with a a, a buzz cut. And uh, you have really ridiculously luscious hair. And I don't know why you would buzz your head if this is the hair that's underneath. I don't know. I've been shaving it since 2009. It was easy. I figured I'd save a few, uh, a few bucks at the barbers. I should have put it in like a savings account. I never did. And I don't know, a lot of, a lot of changes. Had a kid, started a new spot. I'm like, why not grow the hair out? So a little bit of everything here. I wish I could grow my hair out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think that's the other side of yeah, it. I think yeah. I got a lot of friends right now that are like, dude, you've been shaving it for that long, and yeah. now you got that underneath. What are you doing to me? I'm get, I'm catching a lot of flack for that from friends who will not be named. Will say, give me a little heat. And it looks like the way you're going, you're never gonna have to shave your head. I'm I'm, I'm thinking about shaving my head pretty soon, <laughs> but I don't know if if I shave my head, I probably won't be invited back on this podcast. You know, you and, wear a hat for every podcast. What do you care? I, but it's funny, I, I was down in Wesley, Rhode Island over the weekend looking for a barber. I ran into this place, Ray's, and I called the guy beforehand. I go in there, and I'm like, $30 to get this cut? $30? $30? I go, this is crazy. It took him five minutes. It's like $10 per hair. And then he, he didn't have to sweep after he cut my hair because there was nothing there <laughs> on the floor. I think my wife's happy, though. She doesn't have to clean up the back. You know, I used to do it in the shower right before to shave. She'd be clean up the back. She didn't have to deal with any of that right now. Plus, I think she likes a little better than the, the buzz cut there. Yeah. So we'll keep it going for a little bit. I'll, I'll tell you, you look younger. Oh, I appreciate yeah, that. You do. Thanks. I'll take that. I mean, Kyle has a big head of hair. He doesn't look younger with that head of hair. <laughs> I think he shaved the beard. I think he'd make a few steps yeah. in that direction. Yeah, weird. <laughs> I've shaved him before and people are like, no, <laughs> no, I don't like it. But Casey, let's talk about your playing career. Keen state. You're, you're a Keen state legend. I knew Ooh, about that's, you. That's, when a, I that's was an aggressive, up. that's an aggressive use of, of words right there. I don't know if legend that's a, I, I think so. A- I mean, you're, you're like the all time leading like guy for ground balls in a game that's season career like you crushed it you're on the uh, if you're on a top 10 list at your school i feel like you get to be called legend i gotta update those record books i tell you it's funny because obviously kind of going through being on the coaching side of it seeing how stats are kept and the i don't know the variability of that would probably be the term at different spots and different schools if i can go back and restat those i think it'd it'd be even better for me so but i appreciate that it was a it was an awesome experience enjoyed it mark's still up there mark terrio the head coach and yeah, I didn't even start playing lacrosse till I was in high school uh, and then to get 
to play at the college level and ultimately what turned out to be uh, my career path. I, uh, you know, I wouldn't have thought that at the time, but I uh, feel very fortunate for it. Loved my time at Keene. You know, won a conference championship, went to the tournament, fell short two other ones uh, to Eastern Connecticut. I know Coach Gibson's starting up there right now. So I congratulated him and said, as long as he loses to the Owls, that would be a, a good thing for Eastern Connecticut. But no, it was an awesome experience up there. Interesting, you started playing when you were in high school. Obviously, you played other sports in high school. What was the transition like to play lacrosse, having not played up until your high school career? Yeah, I think it was the old football player that had nothing to do in the spring. I wasn't a baseball guy. Brian O'Reilly, the head coach on Topanga Academy in New Hampshire. Another another legend. Very much so. A real legend. Was the longtime football lacrosse coach. He gave lacrosse a few years ago. He's the athletic director, still coaching football up there. Kind of asked me what I was doing in the spring. I had nothing, so I went and played lacrosse. And we just grew to love it. I had good friends through the experience and the ability to go play college after that, going through and there's a few options at the division three level. I was a division three player, which was, which is awesome for having started, I guess, quote unquote, later in the process developing. I played like D midi, then I played O midi, then you get to college, you face off a little bit. So a little bit of everything there and you just kind of fall in love with it and the process of it. Um, it was so easy to work and practice on your own too. I think that's the other thing I really enjoyed about it. Football, Obviously, you can hit the weight room, you can do you know, football-related activities, but football practice is, it's hard, it's a grind, it's not always fun. I always felt lacrosse practice, whether it's on your own or in team settings, was was fun, was enjoyable, right? Whether you're hitting the wall or you're you know, grabbing a bucket of balls and going down to, we called the Oval at the time, where the bringing in practices, getting shots up, bringing some buddies down there, even through college, going out on Sundays and just kind of having some laughs some and getting some work in at the same time. I always felt that was the, the best part about the sport. I played football, hockey, and lacrosse in high school. I was a terrible football player. <laughs> I was she's 165, 5'10", 165. 5'10". All right, five nine, <laughs> five nine. They said I was five ten, so you got to give it, got to give it to me that at that extra inch. But but I remember uh, football practices were brutal. I hated it, and I, I didn't I didn't didn't play my senior year. I was the captain of the hockey team. But to your point, I couldn't wait for lacrosse practice. I just loved going to lacrosse practice and running around and throwing the ball around. It was just so much fun, and that's why I stuck with it. Versus the other two, I certainly wasn't going to play football in college. No one, no one wanted me. That's for sure. Same. I, I'm with you. Uh, yeah, there. I had some opportunities to play hockey in college, but uh, lacrosse just something about it. Just something special about the game. It is. It is. Now, football games, on the other hand, I mean, there's nothing, nothing to match those. I guess the buildup and the camaraderie with it and just the once a week and the fanfare with it. Those are, those are awesome. Those will make it worthwhile Monday through Friday, but lacrosse every single day you show up, it's, you enjoy it. You enjoy practice. You enjoy the guys. It's a, it's just different in a very good way. Yeah. I didn't know. I didn't have that experience in football because I was on the bench. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't, I didn't get there for early in my uh, football career. It took me a little later to get there, but uh, we enjoyed it. My senior year though, we lost to Manchester central in the football final and then BG in the lacrosse final before they were the BG they are now. So. Wow. Wow. I was a running back and I never scored a touchdown. So that tells you something. <laughs> Tells me a lot of things I already know. I I got it. I I think people now, because of the BG dominance in New Hampshire, don't appreciate that before BG, there was Pinkerton dominance. And I think that's kind of the the culture of of dairy and being fed into Pinkerton. It used to be, people also don't know this, Pinkerton used to be like a, a bunch of towns. 
it wasn't just it was it was like Wyndham, it's a couple other towns around there that that fed into Pinkerton. And to this day, I think it's like someone told me it was at least 60 kids try out for Pinkerton's varsity every every year. I mean, it's got the sheer volume that a lot of other places in the state don't have. Did did that kind of influence you to like develop yourself at, at a higher rate, you think? Because there's a lot of schools that are just I, I coach a one. It's really small. Yeah, I think the competitiveness of it and you see the guys around you and you start, not that it's the right thing, but you start going through the depth chart while I'm here at this position. What do I got to do to get up? And you start playing those games with yourself, especially a guy had not played. I played freshman uh, and then JV, I kind of the traditional path, I guess, for a guy to just started out and then varsity kind of end of sophomore year. I was on the roster and then played junior and senior year. But yeah, I mean, Pinkerton's huge. My graduating class thing is like seven, 800 kids. It's still that way. And to your point, Kyle, it's got, I think, Derry obviously sends there, Chester, Hampstead. I think people can still apply to go there. I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, I think just being around it, right, competitively, plus there were guys that were playing at a higher level, so you were exposed to that. Like the Boyle brothers, when I was in high school, where the guys, Brian, went to Notre Dame originally, then went to Penn State and finished there, and Steve, who still uh, coaches collegiately, Drexel, went to Hopkins, was a three-time All-American, actually played for you know my current boss, Bobby Benson, during his time at Hopkins, so you were just around high level players which you kind of saw what it looked like and you saw what to work towards uh, at that point and then like you talked about before bg pingerton won every state championship pretty much until bg kind of got rolling even in 05 and i tell chris this is a laugh we kind of gotten after those guys in the regular season and then they to their credit turned it around in the postseason got it done and they've kind of taken off from there but there's been some good battles pingerton won like two i think two before covid maybe or during the covid stretch so it was uh, some good back and forth there but i give Chris credit, I think he Chris Cameron. Yeah, Chris Cameron. Chris Cameron, the head coach of Bishop Girton, and then Tom Hawks, club director. He's done a good job giving those guys a platform to play at a higher level. Like when I was going through, there weren't a ton of guys at the Division One level. I talked about like Bobby and Steve, or excuse me, Brian and Steve, and then Bobby Shields played at Brown at the time. But, you know, every year those guys churn out a lot of Division One guys for us handful of years and then you got some other programs in the area like four leaf has got some guys going so it's really developed up in new hampshire people always ask me who the best player in the history of new hampshire is and i say steve boyle everyone thinks it's Ryder. everyone says it's Ryder garnsey i'm like no it's steve boyle yeah i'm biased i played when steve's time when steve was there and obviously a little different private school public school opinion is a public school everyone calls it a private school it's a public school but no why do they do that why do people do that i had a i had a guy email me pissed off that i put pinkerton as a public school in our public school rankings i'm like dude you don't even know what you're talking about like i get that it says academy but it's just a name yeah no, it's a public school it's a public school you live in those towns you go to you go to the school nothing fancy well that's that's our way nothing fancy. <laughs> speaking of which you your speciality is the i would say some people would say nothing fancy position but it's become fancy i would say and that's Faceoffs. You're known across the coaching world as one of the best coaches of the position. How has that developed for you? You've you've made you've sent several players pro. You're one of the best coaches at it. How did that happen? It's kind of just developed into something. Like I said, I did it in college myself. I faced off in high school and then in college. And before there was like these 
true Fogos, right? You still played a little bit. So I would face off. I'd stay on, probably stay on a little too long on either end, as uh, my buddies would tell you. And then once I got into coaching, my first coaching gig was at Springfield College, Coach Bugby. Um, you know, I went there. I didn't have any expectation of anything. He's like, yeah, work with face up guys and work with offense. And Mark Eaton was a guy there and being like Pilgrim League player of the year as a junior. And then I moved on after that to Bryant and I coached the Massa brothers. And then still got the guys there that we recruited and coached for a little bit. And I think the position has just grown, developed, ebbed and flowed. And trying to stay with those ebbs and flows is as you go, right? I think it's gone from where Maybe in the early to mid 2000s, everyone was doing some different stuff, whether they call it like rakes or counters or quicks, or everyone's got a different name for it, right? And then you kind of get past that, get into the 210s, it became a much more power game um, with the motorcycle grip, guys over it. Not that they weren't doing prior, but it became much more prominent, I would say, would be the term, and guys getting over the ball. So we, I coached Kevin Massa, and he had a lot of success with it. And then you get guys knee down, and then you kind of develop from that standpoint. And then the rules committee wanted to back off of that. They didn't like the the tie-ups and the elongated face-offs. So then they made you stand up and go over under grip. And now a lot of the things Things that in the early 2000s were guys being you know quicker, what they call it counters now and having different stuff has come back and the counters weren't really the same as what they are now, right? Like in people would rake it, try to play for the ball, kick it out. It wasn't as strong now. The counters have become kind of the next move for the guys super heavy to it. How do you get into it? Whether you come under, whether you come over. And I think trying to just keep up with those trends, but I've been fortunate. I've coached some really highly able players that have been coachable developed and uh, they've coached each other. So I don't think it's as much as what I've had to do. It's those guys being able to perform and execute and just my job is to not mess them up too bad and hopefully give them a plan for success as they go out there and compete and trying to repeat that process of Providence. Last five years, there have been a number of rule changes to the face-off where it stands today. Do you like where it is? Ooh, I'm going to be probably on the outside on this one. I would prefer they become a little more stickler or some stuff. And I think it'll clean it up, right? Like I am more in favor of the, the rule book states and I'm not going to go too much in tangent to vary the whistle and the vary should come after the set. So it's down set whistle. Oops. Sorry. Yeah. I shouldn't hit the table. It's probably making an echo sound. I'm in favor of varying it longer after the set. I think players will adjust. Right? The rule is to react to the whistle, not, overly anticipated and what ends up happening. And I feel for the refs a little bit because they're in a tough spot. They just blow the whistle as fast as they can and want to get out of there. And he's going early. He's not going early. And I think if they played that a little cleaner, players would adjust to it and you'd probably get some cleaner face-offs there, less violations, which would be good for everybody. I think that would be a good thing. I think some of the counter stuff, it's some gray areas. Some refs will call some stuff. Some refs won't call some stuff. And you get that everywhere. But for, for example, for example, holds, right? Like everyone wants a hold. If you're holding a guy, you know, you come over and you pin him. Is that a hold? Is it not? He's playing the stick. Like the rule says you should play the ball instead. So it depends, you know, how you read into it. You want most people are just like ah, blow it and let it go. I think if you want a cleaner product, you vary the whistle a little more after the set. The other thing they could do, they could put the ball down second again, which they had started doing pre-COVID, but then COVID came and they, for safety reasons, wanted the refs to step away and be away from it. But prior, the sticks have been down, the ball went down second, which cleaned up a lot of the lean stuff in there. I don't think that would be a bad thing to get back to. Yeah, I think it's great. I think it's 
should remain a part of the game. I know a lot of people have talked about getting rid of it. I know there's a lot of discussion about it in the pro league right now with teams pretty much punting on the faceoff right and going fully defensive with the poles. I think it's a little different. I think the wings are tighter there, so it makes it harder to kind of hit those seams and go out the front. And then obviously the shot clock factor has been the biggest driver of that with the 32-second shot clock off the faceoff in the pro league. So I think there's a lot of just moving parts variations to it. I don't pretend to have all the answers. These are just discussions I have with my buddies on the sidelines all summer, but I just think there's, it can be a cleaner product can be officiated better to help the officials too. I think one of the things that I feel like face off is like the dark arts of lacrosse, right? <laughs> like I feel like it's more known for people cheating at it than being naturally good at it. Cause there's so much competition for it. There's only, I mean, teams have multiple face off guys, but there's only one guy for each team at a time. Right. So it's basically the only other positions like that is goalie. Right. So you're, I mean, goalie's in the whole game, but, and you can put a different faceoff guy in, but you're, it's the game within the game. And uh, I think some people look at it, people that hate faceoffs are kind of like, well, it's just see who, who cheats better. It's like the Tour de France. You know what I mean? People yeah. are just trying to, looking at it like that. And I, I don't think that's true, but there is an element of, of that. No. no, I mean, there's gamesmanship like anything else. I think there's gamesmanship will be the term I use, but not outright blatant cheating. I mean, it's probably out there in parts, but I I genuinely believe, and I guess I have faith that guys are trying to do it right way. Everyone's trying to gain an edge. And I think the other reason the face-off is, is good for the game, right, is you have the ability to go on runs. If a team's down late, they rip off a few face-offs. They're right back in the game. It gets that. It doesn't have to be an even possession game. you got to earn the ball back. I think that's what makes it unique as opposed to other sports. You just kind of pull and go. I think that is a unique aspect to it as well. But no, I'm, I guess yeah, I'm going to put my faith in the guys who are trying to do it the right way, gain edges that might you know, go to the line if not step over. But blatant cheating is, I don't think, as prevalent as people make it out to be. Sorry. I just want to follow that up real quick. I have a, a friend at a high level facing off and he said he beats guys clean. And then he beats guys with one other thing. And I was like, what is it? He's like, well, face off guys. know if you look at, if you can see the ref's face, you can see when he's going to blow the whistle and that's not clean. So if you, if you beat a guy clean, it means you really beat him. But if you watch the ref's face so he can see when he tenses up to blow the whistle, that's not clean. Yeah, there's a lot of variants. I've seen that over the years. It's in spots. I don't say it's a ton, but it's tough because the ref sometimes is there. He's there. Like you don't always get the look at it. They're in front, they're behind. So I think there's that's Yes, you could do that. I don't think that's got a high rate of success. Personally, you might be able to get a few here and there, but I don't think that's a, if you're going to go in and out every game, that's going to be the answer. When I played, we'd get the best athletic player and sometimes the best skilled player to face off. And he was probably, sometimes we had attackmen facing off, but we had a lot of wing play. What I'd like to see, I think that makes the game more exciting is just a little more wing play. Yeah. And I think you've seen a little bit more with the, the new rule changes. Would you like to see more? Yeah, I would. Play? I'd be in favor of that. I think that's a, a positive thing for the game, right? You get some of those athletes involved. You create unsettled transition situations. You get some um, situational lacrosse. You got to identify guys rolling up, they're rolling back. How are you playing the subs behind it? Are you playing sub game behind it? If you get a the face-off guy losing it, caught on an LSM or a midi, or you put no middies out there, D midi. So there's a lot of decisions that need to be made about that. I would 
I'd be in favor of more wing play, right? And face-off guys are getting so good now. They can read the wings, like who's moving up, moving down. They have their calls. They throw it into certain spots, right? Those guys are getting so slick at it where wing play becomes not only, hey, the loose ball kicks out, who's going to pick it up, but strategic moves. You throw it to this guy, throw it to that guy. If you play down, you can throw forward or out of it. So there's a lot of different things that come into it. I know there's been a lot of talk about you know, people want the wings to move in to increase wing play, which I think the pro league does have. Yeah, I'm I'm in favor of that. The more opportunities to have lacrosse type plays, I'm all in on it. How often do you practice faceoffs live at Providence with the wing play and strategically strategically planning if you lose the ball, if you win the ball, this is what we want to do. Yeah, we do some form of the faceoff every day. I'm not going to say every day is, you know, going head to head and banging and, you know, live face offs, but there's a component where it's developmental with the individual guys, developmental with the wing guys, and probably three, four times a week, some sort of structured team activity, whether it's riding, clearing off the face off, man up, man down, face off, situational face off, when it forward, when it back, whatever it may be, how you're playing those situations, whether it's skeleton, whether it's walkthrough, whether it's token, whether it's game plan, you're doing some way, shape, or form of it almost every day would you say recruiting a face-off guys one of the most difficult positions to recruit uh, yes everyone's kind of looking for the answer there but i think a lot of the time the known guys aren't the known guys in high school right the guys that become team first second third team honorable mention whatever you want to call it all americans at the college level and this isn't universal but it's more of a feel i don't have any evidence behind this are not guys that were the guys in the process recruiting wise you know, we got september 1st coming up and two days here and we're all looking at our list and we're like all right we got this guy that guy this guy where's that guy gonna go and i well i don't have the time right now, resource to do the study on, but I'm very interested how many of those guys on the back end became the guys uh, at the college level, huge sophomores, juniors, seniors, professionally, whatever it may be. So, and I think it's what you want, right? Some guys want the big bruiser. Some guys want the thick body. It's going to get over the ball. Some guys want the players that can get out of the field, make some of those more slick plays, play a little transition offense. Obviously you can get both of those one thing or a settled offense or sub gain offense. You get those in one thing. That's a uh, win right but you know you have a few guys can do a few different things so i think with any other position right it's what you want what you think you can develop what you think you can coach and what you think you're gonna have success with what do you look for in a face-off guy when you recruit him oh man definitely there's got to be a physical component it's a physical position right i think if you have some weight behind you some strength behind you not only to be able to get on the ball and do different things with the ball, but absorb the physicality of a full spring season, right? It's a physical sport. Guys are in there. You're getting beat up. Everyone's trying to take it away for you. So you got to have a physical component to, you know, be able to face off and then survive the season. I think as the game is developed, obviously the more of the ability on the ground transition unsettled, you can find guys that can kind of put both of those things in there and play some offensive situations that doesn't have to be traditional six on six to your advantage. I think that's always a pro as well, but the number one goal is to get the ball, right? If you can get the ball, that's the first box checked and you got to work your way up from there. I think as someone that does evaluations for players in high school, it's the hardest one for me. And it's because I'm not a face-off guy, right? Like I took face-offs like Jack did and, and all that stuff, but in college and even in high school, a couple of times it it's, it's such a nebulous thing because you don't, you don't always know how good the other guy is, right? Like, like, okay, well, I don't want to use a kid's name because I don't want to get anyone in trouble. But let's say a guy from Piatelli faced off a guy from Clams. I know who they both are, but maybe I know one better than the other. 
And I've seen enough at a certain point in their career where I can predict what he's going to do. And I'm still wrong, right? Like it's one of those things where matchups make fights, I think is the best analogy for face-offs. And, you know, I, I talk to guys like Greg Gorenli and Joe Nardella we've had on the podcast as well. And it's, it's interesting to see their perspective on who they think is good based on how they teach and how they develop players. I know that's kind of the two camps, right? The two camps in fa- in face-off world. I'm not saying you have to pick a side, but do you take what they say to account more than you would for coaches for other positions because of that? Yeah. I mean, you're always listening to those guys use anything you hear reference wise. I think a lot of the, Guys typically have gone to those routes or specialist coaches, right? Whether it be um, those programs or other programs, right? And yeah, like any other position though, I think you take the information you gain and make your decision based off what you feel matches what that player can do, what that player can't do, right? So if you're like, all right, they think this, I don't know if that fits what we're trying to do. And you take all those facts into account, but it's the same. Like I think you brought up Kyle with every position we're doing it right now. We're calling club coaches about all the kids across the board, attack, midfield, defense, goalie, face off the middies. And they say he does a B and C. Well, all right. Is that what we're looking to do? Is that how we want to play stylistically? Are they fit here for a lot of other reasons? You're trying to trim your list to a point where it's like, okay, we can get to these different spots and these guys kind of, we feel are right fits for us. And I think that's universal regardless of position. Why are face-off guys so weird then? I do not have that answer. I wish I did. I don't. Do you know. disagree with it? The the uh, assertion? I think specialists are just interesting cats. I mean, look across all sports, right? Face-off goalies, you got kickers in football. They're just a long snappers in football, right? They're just, they're interesting because a lot of practice they're on their own, right? They got to be creative to figure out what they're going to do. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a tough position to play in college. You've got three or four face-off guys. You need guys to practice to go up against, but a lot of those guys aren't seeing the field, and, and that's all they do is face-off throughout the whole practice. I mean, you really have to love it and really be all in. Yeah, very much so. I think one of the things I've noticed in the past couple seasons, looking at college recruiting, like just bringing it down positionally in Division One, in particular, it's not one guy a class now. It's two. It's two face-off guys per class, depending on the school. I saw one place put brought in three. And I was like, you only have so many slots. You're going to bring in three? Like, it, it seems like it's almost, and I, you know, I'm going to go on record and say this because this is my opinion. I know you don't have to agree with it. It's over-recruited. Is that, is that, can you see where I would get to that? You don't have to agree with it, but can you see where I would get to that? I understand your train of thought and logic. I think a lot of that just depends on where you're at, your current roster. If you're at a school that has admission slots of your school, it's not roster capped. Do you like the guys ahead of it? Do you like the guys behind it? Obviously, there's the portal that goes into this as well. So there's a lot of different factors and variations, and everyone's trying to get it right. right? And all you got to do is hit on one of them in theory. If you hit on the guy, it all kind of takes care of itself and it figures itself out. And it's an important part of the game, right? Possession, possession. I mean, you, you have the ball, you get more opportunities at it, right? So I think a lot of places have trended towards, I mean, most places I would say want four guys on the roster, maybe a fifth if you have some wiggle room with it. But I think that's still pretty standard. Four or five, COVID's probably inflated a little more in the last year of the COVID fifth year recruiting. So it'll probably, you'll see less of that, I would think. Let's talk about Providence College. Are you working for... A gentleman, your head coach at Providence, was 
on our podcast and he's full of energy. <laughs> he's got a lot of energy and I loved having him. I enjoyed meeting him. He really just says it the way it is and <laughs> much so. very different than your your old boss. But how's the experience to transition from Bryant to Providence? That's been great. Coach Benson's the man. He's given me a great opportunity to come over and get going with him between Coach Benson, myself, Coach Kendi. And then we are fortunate we just hired Sean Ewart, which is, I don't know how much the rules, NCAA, but there was approval. You could have a third full-time assistant, fourth full-time coach. So we hired Sean in Providence as a spot that wants to win and they gave us the support to staff that position, make it a full-time position and uh, hire that position. So Providence has been really good to us that way. And that was a lot of the alert for Coach Benson coming there. They are supporting the program and they think highly of lacrosse and they want lacrosse to be successful uh, on the national scene, whether Big East and moving on, hopefully uh, beyond that, strengthening support, strengthening resources, scheduling, uh, all of those things to fit into it. And Coach Benson spearheaded that and he's had a great experience in his background. He was at Hopkins, won a national championship there. He was in Maryland, won a national championship there. So he knows what it looks like at that level and to work with him and to see insight into how he does things, his experience. It's a different and good perspective for me to just kind of see how different things can be done. The office dynamic is great. And like you said, he he calls it like it is in a good way. He is not a old school would be the term, maybe rah-rah emotional guy. He is more kind of flat, even keel. And it's the constant message over and over again that eventually seeps in and takes its effects. But yeah, Coach Benson and the man and I nothing but great things to say. Yeah, you had mentioned it, but the volunteer position no longer exists in Division One, correct? I think that's school by school. I think okay. the NCAA said you could staff it full time on a school by school basis. I know everyone's got a different level of that. Some places I think could be wrong on this. So if I'm misspeaking on the rules, I apologize, but you could still have a volunteer. Some places are going to do part time status with it. Some places are full time. So it depends on the level of support from the school. I know for a fact that UMass eliminated it. So I think it's, it's actually like volunteer across all sports. So it's, it could be more of a state rule or a budget rule or a scholarship rule. Well, I know budget wise, that was a big discussion because we obviously had talks amongst our other coaches at different programs, at different conferences, some places that have 25 sport teams really is the athletic department going to fund full-time for 25 sport programs to have a another full-time coach, whatever it may be. So that became a school by school decision, but I go back to Providence. Uh, Providence wants to compete, wants to win. And they were all in on supporting that um, third assistant, fourth full-time position. And we're lucky to have it. And we're excited for coach York. I actually worked with Sean. He was a intern at Inside Lacrosse and we, he did events. So I, I actually know him. All right. So I did not know that. He's probably got at least one bad story about me. Maybe two. <laughs> I'll have to I, ask. I did not back in the day. This is not a secret. I hated doing events back in the day. I was just like, I don't want to do this. I want to watch tape. I don't want to be in the sun. This is terrible. Now I kind of love it. It's like, oh, I get to be outside. This is great. Funny how things like kind of change career wise. But, you know, talking about that, you spent the large majority of your career at Bryant, made the move to Providence. There was a, a changeover with with head coaching there, you kind of were part of all these teams that had all these great upsets at Bryant. How did that culture come about? How was that kind of created with, with Pressler uh, from your time there? 
I think there was a belief after you'd done it a few times, right? And the guys knew that it could be done. I think that was the the biggest part. They knew they could go into the game and they could win the game. You no, know, there was games that did not happen. We had a few good wins in the time. And obviously, Coach Presser steered the ship and, and led the charge there. As we got going, is we had a good run. I think we won four conference championships in a row and then two others after that. So I think the belief was instilled in the guys had all been a part of it in some way, shape, or form. So you knew going in every game, all right, we're going to find a way to get this done or be competitive or there's a way to win this game, right? I think sometimes if you it's a program or a team, whatever level you're at, if you have not experienced a win like that, if you have not, if you don't have the beliefs to program that you can win those games, it's an even harder road to to go up. It's an uphill road. I think the belief factor was real. I think if you know you can win the game, regardless of who's on the other side, that is that plays a large part in it. This fall is your first coach Benson and yourself, Providence College, first recruiting class, his class. What does the class look like? Do you have some transfers coming in? So it's about half the class. So it was half the class was in place. Like anything else with coaching change, there were some fluctuations with the class, but we filled out the class on the back half. Um, We got 16 guys total. We got two transfers, so 18 new faces uh, on the roster. Roster's right around 50 uh, which like the COVID year, you're probably last year of it, you know, hopefully you're in that mid forties to capping out at 50 range, but we're excited about it. We have our first practice tomorrow. We're in our eight hour segment and then we'll kind of do two weeks of that. And then we'll get into our 20 hour segment afterwards, but we're excited about it. But like anything else, when you show up on campus, everything is earned, right? The only, the only thing that matters is your feet are in that locker room. Once they get in that locker room, it's all the same. doesn't matter if you're the first guy in the class, the last guy in the class, if you're the biggest scholarship, no scholarship. You're all everything. You're all nothing, right? If your feet are in that locker room, your opportunity to compete is the same as the guy right next to you in the locker room. So, you know, it'll all be done on the field and that's how guys are going to earn their playing time. But we're excited. Obviously, last year we were drinking through a fire hose trying to figure out how things are done. The guys, the roster, recruiting, you're just running around. This year, there's a little more in place. The upperclassmen know a little more of the expectations. Hopefully building on that. We're excited to get going here. Yeah, it's. I remember when it was kind of announced that you were going to go to Providence and it was... It was shocking, but not because one of your really good friends in coaching and life is Kevin Gould. So basically you kind of took his slot at Providence when he went to to Roger Williams and he texted me this morning and he said, make sure you ask him what his best story on the road was with him. Cause you guys are kind of a duo going out recruiting and things like that. Oh man. I mean, there's a lot of stories with KG as a, um, through the years. I mean, he was with us at Brian for a year. He was at Dartmouth. He was at Lowell and then Providence. I give Kevin a lot of props and credit in the transition. And that's you know, the world of coaching. There's ebbs and flows and job changes. But in the transition to Providence, Kevin was super useful, whether it's how things are done, the class, and just kind of Providence as a whole. I give Kevin a lot of credit there. So he was the man in the process. Ah, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of stories there. I think one of the funniest stories though, I go with Kev is So he just had a little baby boy and me and my wife were expecting our first. And I called Kevin up and I told him one day after the season a few years ago, and uh, he's like, oh, exciting, blah, 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 blah. Literally caused me the next day 
and says they're expecting the day before we are due, which is going to tell them because they're waiting on the finalized stuff. So it's just kind of funny. We're expecting one day apart and we've been kind of through this coaching thing. You know, I talked to Kevin multiple times a week, but he's the man. I don't know. A lot of the stories maybe aren't fit for podcast. I guess that's what well, he said too. To put it. But no, Kevin is Kevin's the man. I can't through the whole process to switch over working with him. He's the man. Now you're a defensive coordinator at Providence. Benson pretty much runs the offense and oversees the defense. Is your philosophy run at Providence? So I guess our big philosophy is we're decision-based and everything we do, or that's what we try to be. That's what we're building towards, right? Coach Benson uses that as the tagline uh, for the offense, which is true, right? And we want to be the same defensively. We don't want to puppeteer guys. We don't want to joystick guys around. We have fundamentals, how you do things, how you want to do things, but ultimately it's a player's game. And if, you know, the perfect game, we could stand there and we wouldn't say much of anything and the players would go out there and execute what you've been doing in practice all week. But there's certain standards, certain fundamentals individually with you know, how you approach the ball, your fundamentals on the ball, how you're going to slide arrival, things like that, slide angles, same offensively, right? How you throw the ball, how you shoot the ball, how you skate pressure. There's a lot of fundamentals, but as far as the bigger picture, we're going to put you in positions where you got to make decisions based on situations that happen. I am not a believer in, all right, you have to slide to this every time in this situation, right? Other times to do it, yeah. Other times not to do it, yeah. You got to be able to make those decisions on the fly. And there can be some bumps in the road and and learning struggles as that develops. I'm just a believer that once they kind of get it, quote unquote, that you just have such a better product on the back end. I think part of it is development over years and upperclassmen helping teaching the younger guys and the culture of it. You know, I think we took some steps there last year, but no, we are very aligned with how we see the game, how we want to do the game, even though it's at two separate sides of the field, right? If you want to slide in the situation, okay, what was your reason? What was your justification? All right, let's talk about that. And then we can kind of coach off of that, right? There's opportunities to make great team, great plays off doubles. And I guess my line, uh, my tagline for the guys always been, you got to know the rules to break the rules. If we have an understanding the, you know, what we're trying to do, how we're trying to do in different spots, even if you go a little rogue or off the page, so to speak, some guys have that ability, right? Like some guys have the, you don't want to limit them as players. You want to find ways to make the best of their abilities as players. So that could be for different guys, different things. And how do you put all that together for the benefit of the team? So like I go back to, I think my line has always been, if you know the rules, you know, what we're trying to do philosophically, how we're trying to do it, what our recovery patterns are, when the times the double are, how we're playing picks, right? You can break the rules at times if you see that play there and there's that trust level, right? I think that's um, been the biggest thing. But yeah, I think we're we're aligned in how we're doing things. At least I hope so. Yeah, very good. <laughs> Jack, this is producer Dave alerting to you the fact that Kyle has left the building. Oh, he, he has. had to go to PT. Yes. Coach, that's about it. 40 minutes went by quick. It did. Thanks it did. so much for uh, coming in studio. Uh, Kyle went off to his PT, so... He's long gone, thank God. <laughs> but uh, you got a tough schedule ahead. Big East is uh, one of the most competitive leagues in the country. I wish you the best this season. I normally get to one or two year games because I'm I'm in Rhode Island and uh, I know you're down in Westerly. You got the yeah. good spot down there. Yep, yep, yep. Your neighbors with Taylor Swift. <laughs> exactly right there. It's a couple of miles down, uh, right. six six miles away. <laughs> that's a good spot. No, she hasn't stopped by to say hello uh, yet. She's on that big Eras tour right <laughs> yeah, now. You got to yeah. wait till that's done. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But it's amazing how many people come by to go see your house. It's, of it, it's, it's quite a house right on the water. But, oh, yeah. yeah. Thanks so much. Really appreciate coming. Awesome. In. Appreciate you having me, Jack. Yeah, Thank thanks. you very much. Thanks, Coach. Great job today. Thank you, Jack. Thank you, Kyle. 
heal up and get better soon. We actually do miss you in the studio. Please follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your pods. The Chasing the Goal podcast is a Siemens Media production. Toughen up, Kyle. <laughs>